Hello, and welcome to your favorite true crime podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Fish. You can find me on my YouTube channel, Gavin Fish True Crime, or visit gavinfish.com. I met Eric Carter Lundin at CrimeCon UK back in June. He hosts the podcast True Consequences, which you can find anywhere you listen to podcasts, and at trueconsequences.com. I invited him on the show, and he was gracious enough to accept. Now, True Consequences focuses on crime in New Mexico, here in the U.S., and in the region called the Desert Southwest. And his motivation for doing his podcast is as heartwarming as it is tragic. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Eric Carter Landin. So you made it back to the States after a... Just a crazy vacation in London. No, you left early from London, didn't you? Yeah, I had to leave Sunday because I had another trip I had to go to for work. So my day job called. I uh, I think that I may have taken your seat after you left. I uh, sat behind all of your stickers and just sat because I I made the terrible mistake of asking for a standing desk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was wondering about that. I was like, that doesn't seem like that's going to work for the entire weekend. I had, I had never been to a trade show in this industry. Like I'm a veteran of trade shows in, you know, my day jobs industry. And I was like, dude, I don't want to be stuck behind a desk. I want to be able to talk to people because that's kind of the way those trade shows go. Very different. CrimeCon was very different. It is very different. And uh, next time get a chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely will. So first off, True Consequences. I'm guessing you named it after Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. That's correct. Is that where you're kind of born and raised? Is that your hometown? No, actually my hometown is called Socorro, which is about 70 miles north of Truth or Consequences. Uh, but it's it's kind of an interesting story because... I, I wanted to create this podcast. I knew I wanted it to be about New Mexico. And of course, we have the most famous uh, New Mexican serial rapist and alleged serial killer who operated near Truth or Consequences in Elephant Butte, New Mexico. And so I kind of wanted to incorporate the name of Truth or Consequences because I thought it would work well for a crime show. And I kept trying to like you know, come up with different combinations and I was going back and forth and trying to figure it out. And my husband just casually says, well, what about true consequences? And it was like mind explosion. Oh my gosh, that's perfect. (laughs) It's the perfect name. But what is it about New Mexico? I mean, you're, you're native New Mexican, right? Mm -hmm. It just seems extremely focused to just focus on true crime within New Mexico. Well, unfortunately, I will never run out of content. Yeah. Um, it, for me, the show is is not so much of an entertainment type true crime podcast. This is an advocacy focused podcast, and I wanted to create this show to help members in my community who are fighting for justice for their loved ones, uh, because I've been doing that for the last thirty five years. And I know what it feels like. It can be very lonely. Well, tell me about that. What have you been doing for the past 35 years? So 
On April 10th, 1986, my baby brother, Jacob Londine, he was nine months old. He was murdered by my stepfather or mom's ex-boyfriend. And um, he was never prosecuted. He was never charged. He has never had to face what he's done. And so my mom and I have been fighting for, like I said, 35 years to get something to happen um, with this case. And it it's really been a bit of a drag honestly it's been very difficult to to deal with it and so and so the podcast was kind of born out of this desire to kind of reclaim my power and my mom's power back and to um create a platform that will help people that are in the same situation that we're in and so that's why i created the show eric okay now You've been an advocate then for your brother for 35 years. So I I feel comfortable asking you some of these questions, especially considering that you started a podcast. You're like out there doing this, right? You're that takes an incredible amount of internal fortitude and courage to say, you know, I'm going to talk about this. It's Mm -hmm. real tough, right? Mm -hmm. What are the circumstances under which you're stepdad or your mom's boyfriend, whatever, how did he get away with what? Tell me about that. It's, uh, it's really convoluted as you can probably imagine. There's a lot of moving parts to the story. Um, but essentially I think the cliff's notes version of it would be, it's a small community. Um, I think there was probably 8,000 people, maybe 7,000 people living there when I grew up there. He worked for the county. He was friends with law enforcement. They played basketball every weekend. Um, He was an upstanding member of the community. Nobody believed that he was capable of doing what he did. His father was a minister, very well respected in the community. And so it's, it's the classic situation of somebody who has some severe mental health issues. You know, I'm not qualified to diagnose him, uh, but I, I could comfortably say that it's probably somewhere in that sociopathic versus, you know, somewhere around that right. where he, he can assimilate in society and present this facade of who he is and people believe him. He's charismatic. He's engaging. He's funny. Uh, he likes to have a good time. So he disarms people that way. That's, that's kind of his M.O., And my mom was just a poor, uneducated Chicana woman who um, kind of fell into this trap with him where he was love bombing her after my dad started kind of stepping out in the relationship. He was also my dad's best friend. Um, His family is very connected to my family. His sister married my mom's brother. There's just so many layers, right? And so... My mom grew up knowing this person her whole life. She never thought that he was capable of any of the things that he did, um, not only to Jacob, but to me and, and to her. So, you know, she goes into this relationship somewhat blind, somewhat naive, definitely very young. Um, things start happening to Jacob. We can't explain it. He, uh, I'm not going to give his name because... We haven't really sure. done trial yet, sure. but he starts to blame me as a five-year-old kid, you know, saying things like I was jealous of Jacob and I, 
I kicked Jacob in the head so hard that he fractured his skull. Jacob is your little brother? Is that right? Baby brother. Yeah, baby brother. So how old was Jacob when this was happening? Um, from the ages of six months until he died at nine months. Holy. Um, wow. So my mom sends me away, you know, to California to be with my dad because she's not sure what's happening. Um, but the injuries continue with Jacob. They continue to happen. And, you know, when Jacob, when Jacob died and everything was kind of going down, there was an investigation into my mom and into her boyfriend at the time and my grandmother and everybody who was around Jacob. Um, you know, the entire time this person, her ex-boyfriend is saying, you know, this isn't going to look good for me. I can't believe this is happening to me. Uh, those were the kinds of things that he was saying while Jacob was in emergency brain surgery. Um, and, you know, in between that time when I left and when, when Jacob died, my mom had stopped really letting him be alone with Jacob. She really was starting to just get a bad feeling that, you know, something wasn't right. Was Jacob his son? No, my dad's son. Okay. And, um, and then just one night, you know, there was nobody to watch Jacob. My mom had to work. So it was like an hour that he was going to be alone with him. And within that hour, I mean, it, was, it wasn't even the full hour Jacob was being airlifted to Albuquerque. Well, what a tragic, tragic tale. And at the age of five, mm-hmm. um, I mean, you have memories of Jacob, right? But probably not as many as you'd like. I remember a lot, honestly. Do you? Um, yeah. I can still hear his laugh. I can, you know, I just have to think about it and I can hear it in my mind. Um, he was a daredevil. He was a, a crazy baby. He loved to do crazy things. One of his favorite things to do was when he was in his baby swing, he would reach forward and grab the front legs. And as it swung back, he would pull the entire swing back with him and like be lying on the floor. And it wasn't like a soft thing. Like he would just fall and he would just sit there and laugh. He thought it was hilarious. He would open all of the drawers and the cabinets and, you know, dump out all the silverware and there would be knives and forks flying all around him. And he was, he thought it was the funniest thing ever. He was too big and too crazy, I think, for this world. (laughs) Wow. And so for 35 years, you and your mom have been trying to find justice for your baby brother. We have, we have, and it's been a long, complicated, confusing and frustrating journey for sure. Have you been able to move the needle at all in those 35 years? We recently, because of the podcasts have been able to get the case reopened by the attorney general. Um, that's thanks to my listeners who have helped support me and to put pressure on them. Uh, it's not moving as fast as I want it to. And the chance of us getting a conviction is pretty slim just because it's been so long. A lot of the evidence has disappeared. Um, my mom's ex-boyfriend confessed to the police, but there is no recording of the confession. There are no notes. No there reports, is n- nothing. No documentation that of what was said. All we have is a little sentence in the cold case file that was reviewed by the state police that said, uh, we were informed that, uh, he did not have to take a polygraph because he confessed. 
that's all we saw. And I'm guessing that he is denying that he ever confessed at this point. Mm, I, I don't know. I'm not sure what, where he stands on that. Um, but I, I do believe that it, that it did happen. Um, he was given a polygraph eventually and he did fail. Even though he told us that he passed, we were waiting in the car for him to finish and he walked out. And so when he said he passed, we believed him because this was like 1986, right? If you fail a polygraph in 1986, you're not leaving the police station. Yeah. Wow. Gotta say, Eric, I, I mean, I, I obviously have not listened to every episode of your podcast. I would have known a little bit more about this. Uh, this story of yours, it makes me admire you even more. The, Thank you. It's uh, and, and unfortunately, we didn't really get a lot of time to to hang out at, at CrimeCon <laughs> really get to know each other. But wow, I'm just I'm just extremely proud at the grit that it takes to go for that long. Uh, well, you and I, we talk to victims' families all the time. You come from a right. place of being a member of the family of a victim, mm-hmm. but it takes an an enormous amount i think the best word is grit to just keep going right i mean yeah. what what is it that makes you keep going well i'm pretty stubborn <laughs> i i don't like to give up um especially when something is a matter of right and wrong you know i i am very uh justice minded as a person I want fairness in all things. And, you know, I, I will stand up and, and yell about it, you know, if somebody is being treated unfairly. So I guess I just have a, a lot of persistence. And I think, I think a lot of that is probably founded in just being forced into a survival mode at a very young age, you know, and not really, really ever being certain if, if you were going to make it to the next day. I mean, that, that was my every day living in, in that household. You know, there was a lot of, a lot of violence and a lot of abuse on every level. So I just feel like he shouldn't get to live his life freely after what he did and probably what he's continued to do to other people. You know, this, the state of New Mexico is complicit in allowing this predator to continue to operate and to continue to groom and abuse people um, for however many years that he's been doing that. Now, when you started the podcast, um, I listened to the very first episode. You actually brought up the toy box killer right, you know, a couple of minutes ago. Uh, what was his name? David Parker Ray, right? David Parker Ray, yeah. Now this that one was a hard one to listen to, and that was your very first episode. Hard because the audio quality was terrible. No, hard because <laughs> of the the horrific story. Uh, you know, uh, maybe maybe we could tell people the story just like briefly, but yeah, th- there there are two sides to listening to the story that I felt like. I was complete. I was completely torn in two. Number one was this guy is a monster and Mm -hmm. he created this toy box in which he would murder. Well, he would torture, sexually abuse and assault and do terrible things to women. On the other side of me, um, was 
the woman who got away and bravely went to the yeah. police. That, and that was absolutely remarkable. Yeah. And, and getting to interview her, I don't know if you got to that episode, but interviewing her was, was amazing and incredible. That, that was my fourth episode. And I couldn't believe like that I was able to have Cynthia Villalotomio sitting at my kitchen table talking to me and telling me about what happened. And she was just so brave and, and incredibly strong, you know, as a, as a human. I, she's so inspiring. So um, t- tell us about the toy box killer. What, yeah. what was he, what was he doing? Yeah. So David Parker Ray, um, he's called the toy box killer, but they really haven't proven that he's killed anybody, uh, except for one person they found that he killed a former boss of his who was living in Arizona. Um, they found his body in and around elephant butte Lake, but David Parker Ray was born in Valencia County, New Mexico, which is about 25, 30 minutes south of Albuquerque. It's a small community, rural farming towns. Um, he was raised there. He had some very strict grandparents. His father was an alcoholic and was very abusive. He had a really tough childhood. He was awkward. People didn't like him. Mm. Um, was he raised by his grandparents? He was raised by his grandparents because his father was out and his mother was out. They were all, you know, using drugs and drinking and just doing all that stuff. So his grandparents took care of him and they were very strict and they were very religious. And at an early age, he started uh, hurting animals and uh, he would torture other kids. You know, there were, there were stories of girls that he tried to torture in his teens. Um, he kind of went under the radar. Nobody really knew what he was doing. And New Mexico is a very remote, open space state. It's, you could go for miles and miles without seeing a single person. And especially around Truth or Consequences, you know, it's a small town and Elephant Butte is like outside of Truth or Consequences. It's even smaller. And David Parker Ray eventually got a job working for the State Park Service at Elephant Uh, Butte. He was a park ranger. Hold on. You cut out there for a second. Oh, he was a a park ranger. He worked for the State Parks Department. My internet connection is unstable, Gavin. That's okay. Sorry about that. Yeah, no worries. and so he had a little bit of authority, you know, he had a badge and he was responsible for somewhat policing the lake. Um, he's said to have hunted. It's probably the only word I can think of um, or looked for victims in a bunch of different places. Uh, Albuquerque is definitely one of those places. He would pick up sex workers and uh, pretend like he was going to hire them and then he would abduct them. He had an a couple of accomplices. One was his his daughter, Jesse Ray, and another was his girlfriend. Her name was Cindy Hindi. They w- um, they would help him in. Mm-hmm. in man, imagine yeah. that conversation. I I can't even can't comprehend how they were roped into that and how they they felt okay doing that. Like they would help disarm these girls and women so that he could take them and torture them. And like you said, he built this toy box. I think it cost him about a hundred thousand dollars. It had, um, electrodes. It had a gynecological chair. It had a bunch of instruments and tools, cutting tools. Um, I think there were like some sex toys that had spikes, like metal spikes sticking out of them. 
that he would use. Um, he would use his dog to sexually assault some of these women as well. He trained his dog to do that. Um, oh, that it just occurred to me what that means. Holy crap. Yeah. yeah. Oh. It, it's one of the worst cases ever, I think. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of women who have never been seen, you know, who we don't even know how many victims he had. Uh, there was the FBI. If you, if you go on their website and you Google David Parker Ray, there's so many trophies. They have photos and photos of trophies from the victims that he had. You know, there's belts and watches and earrings and bracelets and underwear and just like so many different articles that belong to these victims. And it's it's a horrible case, but like you said, Cynthia V. Hill Jaramillo, her story is so inspiring. She got away. Um, she was very smart in the way that she handled that. She was chained up and she still managed to to break out of that trailer where he was living. Um, she kicked Cindy Hindi's butt and uh, <laughs> was able to get help and is the reason that David Parker Ray was ever even found out or discovered because he probably would have continued operating for many more years. And it's believed that he operated for about, I think they said five or six decades doing this. Wow. So when she got out, she was, she wasn't in the quote unquote toy box. She was in his home, like his trailer home. Yeah. He had, he had put her in the toy box a couple of times, but he would move her into the trailer home whenever it was dark and nobody was looking um, she would sleep in the living room, I believe she said, on the sofa bed. But wow. they would have her chained to the bed. Um, and she would be she was chained from her neck and from her feet. So I getting back to his daughter and his girlfriend, like I, this is really interesting to me that well, you can't wor- use words like allow. I, I was gonna say that they allowed him to do this or that they helped him to do this because they likely were were his victims as well. Right. I mean that, and I'm not qualified really to make any type of uh, judgments either, but you can imagine that living with a man like this as his girlfriend, as his daughter, you probably might have a target on you and maybe you are able to rationalize helping him to get other targets just so that he's not focused on you. I don't know that it's just, it's a really interesting thing to think about. Yeah, it, it's hard to know. And, you know, there is a diagnosable condition called hyperstophilia, and that is uh, somebody who gets sexual pleasure from being in a relationship with somebody like that. Uh, it's a paraphilia. It's terrifying. I, I don't know that Cindy Hindi has that. Um, I don't know if she was a victim or not. It's hard to say without having been directly involved in what was going on there. But um, it's she was charged and prosecuted uh, she just got out. I believe it was last year. She just got out of prison. Um, but so how long did she stay in prison? Oh gosh. So it was like 1997, 25 years, something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Wow. That. And so you got to sit down with Cynthia. What's her name? Vigil Jaramillo. Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. Yep. Great pronunciation. <laughs> I lived in Argentina. Awesome. Yeah. I speak Castellano. That's uh, yeah. Yeah. Man. She, 
How Cynthia fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. She, she, uh, she told me her whole story and that was my first interview that I'd ever done. It was terrifying. I was so nervous about it, but, um, the audio quality is not great, but I think it's a powerful, powerful episode. Now. So how many episodes have you done now? Uh, last week was 102 or 101. And that was the Taos revolt. Yes. So I, I listened to that one too. I figured, you know, I'm going to listen to the first one and the last one just to get a flavor of it. I've now subscribed. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> Thank but, you. Holy crap. New Mexico. Yeah. You will not run out of stories in New Mexico. Will you? Never. Yeah. I'll never run out. Unfortunately, I, I wish that there would be a day where everybody has justice and nobody's killing anybody, but it's probably not coming anytime soon. So how, uh, how do you go about finding your cases? Uh, well, I kind of have three things in mind when thinking about what I'm going to cover. Um, I, I'm always wanting to cover cases that are not solved, cases that need, uh, need awareness around them to put pressure on law enforcement or political figures to do what, the right thing. Um, that's my primary focus. So... Anytime a family member reaches out to me and, and they want help, I'm, I'm there to help them. I'm willing to help them tell their story in their words without, you know, editing for context, without changing things, um, without limiting them because they can talk for as long as they want. We could do five episodes about that case if we need to. And I think that's the beauty of podcasting. So that's kind of my primary focus. Secondarily, I, I choose cases that will tell stories related to why the justice system is the way it is in New Mexico or to help illustrate why things are working the way that they are. And so those cases are often solved, but they do tell the story and speak to some of the laws and some of the things that we're struggling with right now in New Mexico. What are some of those things that you're struggling with in New Mexico when it comes to the justice system, the legal system? Yeah. Um, I think that New Mexico is a very defendant friendly state, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing. Uh, but it oftentimes it's at the expense of the victims and the victims' families. And I think that's where we fall short. If we're going to be uh, focused on defendant rights, we should also focus on victims' rights. We shouldn't neglect victims' rights in favor of defendant rights. Um, Can you give me an I, example of how New Mexico is more defendant centric? Yeah. Uh, so a few years ago, we passed a law called, uh, I'm not sure exactly what it's called, but it's been colloquially referred to as uh, bail reform. And basically what that does is it takes away uh, the option for bond. And, and the idea behind it is very positive, I think, because New Mexico is such a poor state. There's a lot of times where people can't afford to bond out or to bail out. So they have and, to stay in jail for a year or sometimes right. two, right? Right. And that will put strain on, on our resources that we have in, in our jails, of course. Uh, also leads to overcrowding. Also sucks for the defendant, right? Sucks, especially, sucks if the defendant, yeah. especially if, if they're, they're innocent. innocent. Yeah. yeah. If they're innocent, it's, it's terrible. If they're guilty, maybe I don't feel so bad about that. Yeah. But, uh, it's hard to know, right? Because they haven't been to trial yet. They haven't had the chance to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, reasonable doubt that they are innocent or guilty. And well, so, and typically defendants will waive their right to a speedy trial. That's one of the things that right. a lot of people, uh, 
will kind of go after our justice system for is why are these people languishing in jail for a couple of years? They have a right to a speedy trial. The reason is their lawyer advises them to waive that right. Right. Yeah. So, you know, the, the bond, the bond, no bond law was, was created to help ease overcrowding to level the playing field for different socioeconomic, uh, categories or levels. And, the people of New Mexico voted for it and it was, we were told that it would be only nonviolent offenders. So, you know, we're talking, I don't know, maybe somebody who stole a car and they didn't use a weapon and there wasn't somebody else involved. Um, maybe somebody who stole a hundred dollars from, I don't know. They don't have a weapon. They're not going to go out and kill somebody. So we'll let those people. Okay. Yeah, we'll let those people out. And this was pending. a referendum that went to the people. This wasn't Correct. a, you know, a bill that made its way through both houses of the all that stuff. Okay. Cor- yeah, it it did go through committees to craft it, of course. Right. Um, and there were two parts to it, but when they put it on the ballot, they left the most critical part out, which was how this tool that they use to analyze risk assessment is being used. And what ends up happening now is we see violent offenders being released pending trial. Um, And one of the worst examples of this is Fabian Gonzalez, who's in trial right now. He was involved in covering up the murder of Victoria Martins. I'm not sure if you've heard of that case. Yeah. It's an awful, terrible case. Uh, Fabian Gonzalez was not only released pending trial, but he was also freed from the restriction that he would not be allowed to have contact with kids. So not only is he allowed to be free pending the trial, he's also allowed to be around kids. Somebody who is being charged with hiding evidence by dismembering a young girl's body is now allowed to, and he, I don't know how involved he was because there's so many inconsistencies in that case. And so many people were telling different stories that it's hard to know exactly what happened, but he was there. He was involved and he was still allowed to be around kids. So there's a lot of things happening here. And he, is, and he's not nonviolent, right? So how did that, how did that happen? What, well, and he's not the only violent offender who we have out in the streets now. And so what we have is people who are just killing freely and getting arrested and then being released. And it's happening so often. It's so frustrating because, you know, we were told something different when this law came, came across the voters ballots. And what we're seeing is a failure to execute this law properly and that's just one example and you can see why i mean i can see both sides before we left california and moved out here to pennsylvania the same same arguments were being made in the state of california about bail reform and they ultimately did it if i if memory serves somebody correct me but if memory serves they did it through the um through congress through the state you know Mm -hmm. uh, assembly and senate and then the governor signed it, if I remember correctly. Uh, so it didn't go through the referendum process. But it's had the same kinds of effects where, um, where people 
there have been examples of people who have been uh, arrested, processed, and released and reoffended eight times in mm-hmm. one 24 hour period. You know, yep. th- those obviously aren't murderers. They're not murdering eight times in one 24 hour period, but it's, it definitely has unintended consequences. It really does. And, you know, supporters of the law will dig their heels in and say it's working, but you see these cases coming through and, and the amount of violence that's happening in this state is, is staggering. I mean, I, I feel like it's at least one or two homicides every other day. It's, it's insane. Wow. There's only 2 million people in the whole state. It's crazy. Yeah. It's not like New Mexico is really that big of a place. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I have a, I have a friend in upstate New York who's a former prosecutor. I just going back to something you said earlier about how much open space there is out in New Mexico. Uh, so she's out in uh, upstate New York and she tells me just from her time being a prosecutor, she can't go on a road trip without looking out into the fields, the forests, the deserts, mm-hmm. whatever. Think, I wonder how many bodies are buried out there. Absolutely. I, I think that all the time when I'm driving through New Mexico. And New Mexico is one of those places, right, where there's just so much open space. You could get away with a lot. Absolutely. It's something that I think makes us ripe for things like cults and serial killers and just all the crazy, insane things that happen. New Mexico is the per- not that I'm trying to like advocate for cults and serial killers to move to New Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely don't want that. You don't want but, that? But we're ripe for that. Just, yeah, just because of the actually kind of libertarianism of a lot of that place. In fact, I know that Taos is actually famous uh, in a movement. Man, what is the name of that architect? It's Mike something where he creates these uh, he oh, the earthships. Them earthships. Yeah. And he, he started in Taos because it was the only place that he could really find in the United States that let him try. So it's very, <laughs> it's very, very much a libertarian, small L kind of a it's place. It's a, right? a little hippy dippy kind of place, really. So, you know, an earthship is perfect for Taos. But I mean, where, what else would you live in in Taos besides an earthship? Gotta, gotta be an earthship, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. What else, what else about New Mexico is, um, I guess is defendant centric. Um, I think that's the biggest one, honestly. And, 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 you know, I, I do, I'm all for due process. I'm all for, uh, the state having to prove its case that somebody actually did what they're accusing them of doing. I, I think that's really important. Um, but it just seems like, a lot of the families feel left out in the process. They feel forgotten in the process. And so I can't really quantify that within legal terms or legal, legal frameworks. It's just kind of a sense that families get here of just not really being taken seriously, not being communicated with, not being believed. And it doesn't happen to everybody, but it is somewhat of a common theme that I hear when I talk to family members who are fighting for justice. So, um, because New Mexico, it, I mean, it's definitely not a small place geographically. It's a big landmass, much bigger mm-hmm. than a lot of countries around the world. Right. But yeah. there's only a couple million people in there. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I'm wondering is because there are so few people, is there kind of a ruling political class? Are there 
are there multi-generational families that continue to be governor, you know, uh, senate, state senators, state mm-hmm. congress people, mayors of towns, school boards, yeah. things like that. Is there kind of that ruling political class there in New Mexico? Absolutely. Absolutely. That exists. Um, nepotism is alive and well in New Mexico. It's uh, doing its thing. It, you see that generation upon generation of senators and governors and, you know, public service employees that, you know, their families have been here for hundreds of years. Uh, it definitely exists here. And there is quite a bit of corruption associated with some of that, as you can imagine. Um, it can be very challenging to get things done here. We move pretty slowly because because of those things, because of those factors. Well, if you don't mind getting back to the case of, of your little brother, you talked about how um, your mom's boyfriend was, you know, he played sports with members of the police and he was, he was connected in with that. That is the real, I mean, that's the most dangerous kind of corruption, is it not? I, I think so. You know, I think that that has allowed this person to continue to offend. Um, I can't prove that, but I'm very certain that, that he did not stop, you know, his predatory behavior. So it is concerning to me when you think about the fact that somebody could get away with such a violent crime against an infant. And, and that, that was something that my mom and I struggled with for a long time because we started to feel like we were being gaslit by the authorities. You know, we're, we're really upset about this, you know, our, yeah. uh, this beautiful, bright member of our family was robbed from us, was taken from us. And when we went to law enforcement and when we went to the district attorney, we were told essentially that we were making a bigger deal out of it than it needed to be. That Which, is infuriating. Yeah. Like I, I'm sitting here <laughs> like my blood is boiling. Just hearing that sentence, making yeah. a bigger deal about this than you, than it needs to be. There's no bigger deal than the death of anyone. There's, there's no bigger deal. Well, I think we got a lot of, you know, poor this guy. He doesn't deserve all this stuff that you're piling on him. You're just a vindictive woman who's mad at your ex-husband because, you know, one reason or another, he found another woman, something like that. Um, they told my mom that she gave him an alibi. And what they were referring to was when they asked her if she thought he was capable of hurting my brother. She said, I don't think so. And that's an alibi. I mean, not really. No, but that's not an alibi. <laughs> according to them, it was. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That is just. No, I, I see cases like this. So I'm I for whatever reason, Eric, and I, I do not have the same kind of tragedy that you have in your background in mine. I, I, mm-hmm. I've never experienced anything like this personally. But I'm drawn to those cases where, where the victim has been victimized twice, right? Yeah. The original offense, which is usually something egregious like murder. Sometimes it's sexual assault and those sorts of things. And then they're victimized by the system who doesn't care about them for whatever reason. Sometimes it's corruption. Sometimes it's um, apathy. You know, yeah. I, I often see cases where the victim was a prostitute. 
or they were a drug addict or they were known to do dangerous things or, you know, and so they're like, well, you know, if she just wouldn't have done that, she would never have been in that place in the first place. And it's, this is really on her. I, I see a lot of those kinds of cases mm-hmm. and they drive me crazy, but I'm especially, especially just pissed off by ones that are actively corrupt. Yeah, it is, um, at its best negligence at its worst, it's blatant corruption and it could be somewhere in between the two, but those are the only things after all this time that I can really put my finger on with the case, you know, that it's the only thing that makes sense. So what do we do? I mean, what do we do with, so I personally, I like, I like to think of the world as mostly a great place, right? There are some bad things that happen, but for the most part, there's, there are great people. And I, uh, I always refer back to Mr. Rogers. Like I'm, I'm 46 years old. Mr. Rogers was my hero. That's who I watched Mm -hmm. all the time. And he, uh, he said when I was a little kid, I remember him saying something. His grandfather said that when something terrible happens, look in the background for all the helpers see how many helpers you can find. And I'm 46 years old, Eric. And I still, when I watch the news and somebody's done something horrific, you can count the hundreds of people who care who are in the background who are helping. Right. Yeah. So I like to think that the world is a good place, you know, on, on Moss, (laughs) (laughs) but, and so because I am maybe a little bit, um, too optimistic sometimes, and maybe a little, uh, naive other times, I don't want to think that there are this nefarious group of people who acting as a group or acting individually will do things that are super, super terrible for what seem to be uh, like what minimal payoff. Like for yeah. example, the cops that um, interviewed your stepdad back in the day who played ball with them or whatever Mm-hmm. They probably weren't like Dr. Evil's going ha 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 on the back, right? They're not, they don't think of themselves as evil people doing terrible things, but in yeah. this case, they did an evil, terrible thing. Yeah. I think, what do we do I about think, those people? Well, I think back then a lot of, there was a lot of misunderstanding about domestic violence and about child abuse. There was a lot of misinformation and somewhat of, you know, old wives tales related to what it meant to be in that type of relationship. And when you have somebody who is super charismatic, super engaging, friendly, funny, gregarious, you know, it's that, it's that same trope that you see on the news. Oh, he was the nicest guy. You you could count on him for anything. i never would have thought he would have been capable of this. It happens to everybody. And honestly, I can see why the police were in the position they were because they didn't want to believe that this person was capable of such evil. And when he said it was an accident, they wanted to believe him. My mom wanted to believe him. Everybody wanted to believe him. Nobody wanted to believe that he was capable of this. But my mom stayed with him. You know, they got back together because obviously he was innocent. If he passed the polygraph and he's free, he must be telling the truth. He must have, it must have been an accident. And 
as soon as she married him, he starts beating her up almost every day and holding knives to her throat and wrapping wire hangers around her neck and trying to suffocate her. Um, He sexually abused me. He would lock me in the clothes dryer. I mean, there were so many things that happened after that. And so when she finally left him, when she was finally able to get out of this horrible situation and she went to the police and she went to the DA, that's when they felt like she was just being vindictive. Oh, so it it starts out as uh, it had to be an accident. And then Mm -hmm. when he shows his true colors, that's when they, they put the blame on her. She's a woman Mm -hmm. scorned as they Mm -hmm. used to say, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, while I don't agree with the way they handled it, I can see why they handled it the way they did. And it, it doesn't excuse it, but it definitely makes sense to me, especially considering the climate in the 80s, what it was like to be a woman in a, an abusive relationship. I, I think a lot of, uh, I think we've made progress on that. Absolutely. But I still think that there's probably way, <laughs> way further to go societally on those things. A hundred percent. And my perspective on that is, yeah, yeah we've, made pro- we've made progress and it's been good progress. And there's nothing to be mad about there. But the the challenge we have is that we still, I think, as a society and as individuals, we don't want to believe that this is as prevalent as it is. We don't want to believe that this is happening, you know, in more homes than it's not happening in. And that's because we don't talk about it because there's a lot of shame around it. There's a lot of shame around being a victim and there's a lot of victim blaming. You know, not just from the authorities, but from the public in general of, you know, why didn't she just leave or she should pick better men? You know, why is nobody saying, why are we not changing the behavior of of the boys we're raising? You know, why are we not setting better examples of how to be in a mature relationship and how to know when to walk away when it's not healthy anymore? You know, these, these are conversations that I think are very personal and very vulnerable, and nobody wants to have them. So I think that's what it's going to take for us to get over this hump and, and get the rest of the way there. That's, I'm, I'm sitting here doing like a personal inventory with, uh, just to see, how do I say this? I, I lived, uh, up until we moved to Pennsylvania, uh, which was a little over five years ago now, my wife and I were both raised in Northern California in nuclear families with parents who loved us and brothers and sisters who we could count on and they could count on us. You know, it's like, I didn't realize Eric that I had won the family lottery. You know, I I just didn't know that uh, because after all these years, even the people that were in my own neighborhood, the friends that I played with, the people I grew up with, I found out, you know, sometime in some cases, decades later, just what hell they were living in their home. Yeah. Uh, so I guess, I guess I'm saying that in that when we moved to Pennsylvania and it became, we moved to a rural area uh, where we live in a little town, it's like 6,000 people. And then maybe in the surrounding area, there might be 10,000 people um, mostly rural that we do see a lot of, we do see a lot of domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do see way more drug abuse than we ever 
I, I'm sure that there was drug abuse where I where I grew up, but but it's more prevalent out here. At least I'm noticing it more. Yeah. Um, and then I'm I'm seeing a lot of um, just uh, the kinds of behaviors that come with, with generational poverty, right. With, mm-hmm. with, uh, growing up generation to generation, not having resources that you need, not having the skills to get those resources, not in some cases, not having the intelligence to have the skills to get the resources. Um, and I see, so I'm doing a personal inventory as you're talking there and I'm going all these people that I'm speaking with. Yeah. As soon as they start talking about domestic abuse or anything like that, dude, I get real nervous real fast. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't want to talk about it. I don't even, I want to run away from those conversations, but the reality mm-hmm. is we need to have those conversations. <laughs> we have exactly. to do it. Right. You can't change something by ignoring it away. You can't, it's not possible. You have to face it. You have to face it. Otherwise Nothing will change. So is that what you're hoping to do with the podcast? I mean, are you trying to open up conversations? What are you you trying to do? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good part of it. I I definitely have had a lot of these conversations on my podcast and I will continue to have these conversations. Uh, I think it's super important. One of the things that struck me is, as I've gotten more awareness around Jacob's case and, you know, his story's been brought to larger audiences. Looking at how people react in the comments, which I know is not a happy place to live, but I was a bit naive when I first started telling Jacob's story. And to see the amount of hatred towards my mother. Real, still. Still. I mean, there's so much hatred towards her from people who listen to a 45-minute episode about my life and suddenly know everything that there is to know about the story. Um, And so that really inspired me to start pushing back and to start having conversations about not only how do we portray victims in the media, but how do we, how do we reconcile as a consumer of true crime content? How do we reconcile that? How can we stop blaming victims for, for what they were put through? Because I, I, I've always said nobody will ever blame my mom more than she blames herself. Mm. So like, don't try because you're not going to do it. Well, that brings up a subject that I've, I've been really concerned about in just in the true crime and uh, community, let's say it's not really an industry, right? In our community, it's billions of dollars. We can call it an industry. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that I'm really concerned about is that, uh, the kind of content that I create, I don't want to just create some kind of horror porn, right. Or murder porn. I don't trauma porn, trauma porn. I, I, those are things that I don't want to create. I, I want to make a difference, right. I want to move the needle in cases. I'm Mm -hmm. not so naive that I would think that I could end up solving a case, but I would love to play a part in helping you know, move a needle slightly. But I think that our, our community, there's way too many of us that just are out to tell stories that are horrifying. There's a lot of layers I think here, and it's something that I'm very passionate about and that I will 
blab about to anybody who will listen. Well, blab away. <laughs> Let me hear it. Um, a- as a victim and a family member of a murder victim, it's it's very difficult to exist in this space and see the kinds of content that people are creating and the sheer amount of money that's being generated on the backs of the victims. I think it's really important to to talk about this. I think it's important for listeners of true crime and consumers of true crime to think about some of this stuff. Um, I don't have a problem with people making money for the work that they're putting in. But I have problems with people who will do things to jeopardize cases so that they get the inside scoop. Um, Or people who will start attacking family members of murder victims because they're saying things contrary to the theory that they believe is true. Um, I have problems with documentaries being created uh, when family members are begging studios to not create documentaries about their family members and then them making millions and millions of dollars doing that. Now I get it. People are going to say, Eric, there are some family members that are involved in these murders and maybe we don't want them controlling what can and can't be created. And that's fair. I understand that. However, when there is a clear suspect and the family is begging you because first of all, it's going to be super traumatizing for them. Uh, the case may have already gone to trial. So what's it going to do? What, what good is that going to do for anybody? And so my, my thing is, first of all, intention goes a long way. It goes 99% of the way there. If your intention is to be in this space to create awareness for family members and to help people, you know, that's awesome. That's more than what most people will do, right? So you have that intention. Uh, nobody's going to do it perfectly. People are going to make mistakes. People are going to say things that they're going to regret. It just happens. We're humans. You know, I, I don't do this perfectly. Mm-hmm. I'm always learning. But if your intention is, I'm here to help, I don't think you can go wrong. And as long as we're constantly learning and growing and changing and improving, we'll all get there eventually. But I do have problems with the predatory nature of some true crime creators. I have problems with the exploitation of the worst day of somebody's life. I think that that is wrong. Um, I, I guess I have a very strong opinion about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, again, just as you're talking, doing a personal inventory, I've been at this just for a couple of years now. I think that there are times that I've crossed the line that I haven't mm-hmm. been, um, uh, I guess, sensitive enough to what it might mean to a family member. I, I think I did that earlier on than I do now. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting that everybody, like if you go into the comment section of a, of a YouTube video podcast or whatever, uh, People have their opinions and they stick to them. And and mm-hmm. most of those, like you and I will research a story and like in, in some of my cases, you know, in, I have a couple of cases where I am deep. I have like on Amanda Winkowski, I have something like 800 pages of documents. I have 400 photos. I have another one where I have over 2000 pages of documents. I have hundreds of photos. I have another one where I've got 
six or seven hours of police recordings. I've got hundreds of documents, things like that, right? I'll like really, really dig into it. And then I will report and I will say what it is that I believe based on everything that I've researched. And then somebody in the comments, having listened to my 17 minute spiel, will tell me exactly why I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Having not looked at any of of the evidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. I, uh, I do the same thing. You know, I do very similar style research. I do public records requests and I rely on interviews when I can family interviews when I can. Um, yeah, I think that I admire that and, and I would say continue, continue doing that style of podcasting because too many of the cute chit chatty shows will just listen to everybody else's coverage about the case and then write an episode based on what someone else has told them. Um, not knowing the level of research that was done on any of those shows and it can it can often lead to um, you know misinformation. Uh, there there's a lot of misinformation about David Parker Ray. You know people have a lot of different the- theories and things that are based on misinformation. So uh, I try to try to be factual. I think that's another important piece of of being ethical. You know is rely on facts. Don't make things up. David Parker Ray. Ac- actually, before I go back into that, you mentioned something. Uh, public records requests. How is the state of New Mexico when it comes to allowing the public to see records like, like the things that you're trying to dig into? Well, we have a very comprehensive law that was written in response to FOIA being created. Mm -hmm. And it's called IPRA. It's the inspection of public records act. It's a New Mexico law. And we are very transparent as a state. There's very little that you will not be given in a public records request from New Mexico. Uh, It does vary agency to agency because some agencies are more up to date and up to speed on the law. The larger the city, typically, the better they're going to be at responding. Uh, The smaller agencies have less resources, so it's a little bit difficult sometimes for them to navigate how to do that. But uh, it's been pretty pretty good sometimes it can take a while i think with the victoria martin's case they said there was like sixty-four thousand documents and so (laughs) it was going to cost uh somewhere like eight thousand dollars for me to to get (laughs) 25 cents a page (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) no a lot of people in our audience won't understand that that uh it's actually quite expensive to get information and it's not because the government agency is trying to make money on you necessarily mm-hmm. it's that the amount of research they have to do to get information to you and redacting oh yeah and redacting so in the state of new mexico open cases can you get um can you get police files and stuff like that you can get some things you can get sometimes you can get the initial report and maybe some of the supplements but they will hold back stuff that they feel could hinder their investigation. And they have the prerogative to do that. They just have to document what that is. They don't have to share that with the person requesting the records. They just have to have that documentation trail for themselves so that they can prove it to the auditors from the state if they do get audited. Mm. But what about cases that are closed? Yeah, typically you'll get you'll get a lot. You can get much more 
um, than I would think <laughs> you would get here. Mm. Uh, I mean, and not even just here. Like I think Durango, I did a, a records request for the Dylan Redwine case and I did a 15 part series on that story because I got so much documentation and so many photos of evidence and video recordings and audio recordings and phone call recordings. I mean, it was just a, an insane amount of information that we had to weed through. So one of the things that's kind of frustrating to me as I do this, well, I, uh, I should say it's sometimes frustrating, but like most people in our audience probably don't understand the process of getting public records. And many don't understand that state to state, it varies wildly. So mm -hmm. in the state of Pennsylvania, most states in the, in the nation, if a case is closed, it's deemed public, they will yeah. redact social security numbers, names of victims, you know, things like that to birth dates. Yeah. Things like that. But, but they'll give you the whole file, but in the state yeah. of Pennsylvania, uh, a police like investigative file, a, a criminal investigative file is never public ever. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's so frustrating. And there are some States where, um, like I know in the state of Minnesota, I've mentioned this before on the podcast that in the state of Minnesota, um, they do have exemptions for law enforcement. So if it's an open case, then they don't release everything. There are a few things they do release, but even if it remains open and it's cold, that exemption expires after 30 years. So the state where we are ripest for armchair detectives, citizen detectives, web sleuths, whatever you want to call them to actually solve cold cases is the state of Minnesota because you can get everything. As long as it's 30 years old. As long old as it's 30 older. years old. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, hmm. I, I'm always running into weird laws. Florida's awesome. New York is, eh, it's okay. California sucks. <laughs> Pennsylvania <Yeah>. sucks. <laughs> but yeah. New Mexico, it sounds like it. it's uh, like it's a good law. IPRA seems like it's a good law. It is a good law, and it's very robust. You know, I have a friend who actually works in a records department for a municipality and she's educated me on a lot of I mean, she's very smart she knows the law inside and out and um, she actually has to speak to her city council about it often because she's one of the most knowledgeable people about the ipra law mm. in the state and uh, i've learned so much from her and it's helped me actually write better requests because you know she she would tell me things like if you have to and this is good for you to know if you ever have to request records from new mexico if you say I would prefer these in digital and they have them available digitally, they have to provide them digitally and they can't. Um, so then, you know, you don't have to pay for copies. <laughs> so it's kind of like a little loophole. As long as you have that wording in your request and they have it available digitally, you can get it. And it's typically much less expensive. Mm. I did do a records request. And now that you think about it, now that I think about it, I did a records request uh, when Helena Hutchins was shot down there and. New Mexico. And it was, I think I beat like the major networks to getting all the information out on that. <laughs> it was really easy. Yeah. It's very easy. And their websites are friend user friendly, easy to use. Yeah. Yeah. And when you make a phone call, people answer and are helpful. I love that. I love mm -hmm. that so much. It's really funny in government at whatever level, sometimes it's just at a local level. Sometimes it's much higher than that. You will find people that are helpful and you'll find people that are not. 
Um, yep. I once did a records request up in uh, Western New York where I sent a records request into a chief of police in a little town in Western New York, right up on the Canadian border, right on the Niagara river, way hmm. up there. And, uh, <laughs> and I got an email back within like five minutes from the chief of police. Hey, Gavin, my city hall is never going to give you this records the way you wrote it. Here's my cell phone number. Give me a call. And so I gave him a call and he's like, this is how you word it. And they have to give it to you. And he dictated to me exactly how to write my request. Yep. And sure enough, I got it. I was like, yeah, that chief of police, he was, I don't know. He was just having a good day or he's just a super helpful guy, or maybe there's not much crime in his town. I don't know. <laughs> But there are people that are like that. Uh, sometimes not. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've had a few interactions where, you know, they've been very helpful or like the opposite. They're just like, sorry, can't help you. You're not getting anything. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about the Dylan Redwine case. What is that? Oh, gosh. Uh, so no, I, want, I Pop- want you to tell a 15 episode story in like 15 seconds. Go. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> so. I typically cover, you know, New Mexico, but I say, and the American desert Southwest Durango, Colorado is in the four corners area for Mm -hmm. people who do not know that. Uh, And the four corners area consists of New Mexico, Colorado, uh, Utah and Arizona. Right. So, uh, obviously because of my history, I gravitate towards cases involving children and Mm. it's just something that my heart bleeds for i guess is a dramatic way to say that totally understandable yeah um and so this case hit me really hard because dylan was um a 12 year old boy who or 13 year old boy who was murdered by his own father and the case is really tragic and really difficult to get through the amount of information that we received like i said was way more than I thought I was going to get, way more than I've ever gotten on any other case before. Uh, Originally, I was going to do a three to six part miniseries on Dylan. uh, And then after I looked at everything, I was like, there's no way. We're just going to have to write it and see see where it lands. Uh, Hopefully, it's not 57 episodes, but we'll see what happens. And so I started digging into the case. I start the series in a court battle between Dylan's parents, between his mom, Elaine, uh, she was Redwine at the time. She's now Elaine Hall and Mark Redwine. And the couple, they just, you know, they were finalizing the divorce. They were trying to get the custody arrangement together. And Elaine decided to move from Durango to Colorado Springs or Monument, Colorado. Her mom was very ill. She had support there. She had family there to help her with her kids. and. So she put in a motion with the state of Colorado to allow her to move. And in this court battle, Mark starts to say a bunch of terrible things about Elaine and about their older son, uh, Corey. He calls them essentially drug addicts and alcoholics and is fighting like hell to get custody of Dylan, even though he never once executed his parental visitation, which was supposed to be 50-50. He never once in like a full year executed that. He was always away. So this indicates that he that he just wants to be 
contrarian to whatever she wants. Yeah, he wants to win. That's he it. He wants to win. And, you know, Dylan, prior to this, about a year before this, he had discovered some compromising photos on his father's computer. Um, Mark was wearing a diaper. He was wearing women's clothes. He was eating feces out of the diaper. Um, he was wearing makeup. It was just some very fetishy photos. And Dylan, I think, was 11 or 12 at the time. He had no context for probably sex in general, let alone the fetish side of things. And it really tainted the way that he viewed his father. It changed their relationship. It changed the dynamic. It made Dylan extremely uncomfortable to be around his father. And he was not the type of kid that was quiet and reserved and shy. He was the type of kid who would let you know exactly how he felt about something, whether you wanted to know or not. And I think that that was the problem in their relationship that led to Dylan's death eventually. The relationship between Dylan and his dad? And his dad, yeah. Yeah. So what happens in this case is Dylan is questioned by the judge and that was sealed originally. But the judge reopened um, that file during the trial of Mark Redwine. And so we do have, I have, exactly what Dylan said to the judge. He was being a little bit PC in a lot of ways. He said he wanted to be with his mom, but the reasoning he gave was not because he didn't like his father or because of anything that his dad had done. It was more like, I have friends there. I like the teachers. I like the school. I'm happier there. And the judge really didn't feel like that was enough of a reason to keep him from his dad. So he said, you know, he ordered that Dylan would have visitation with Mark, uh, but he did allow Elaine to move to, to uh, Monument. And this enraged Mark, of course. So this happens in August or September of 2012. Um, Dylan is ordered by the court to go to Durango for Thanksgiving to be with his father. He's telling everybody that he can, that he doesn't want to go, that he doesn't want to be around his dad. Um, he's so adamant about it that his mom calls her lawyer to see if there was anything that she could do to avoid sending Dylan. The lawyer said, no, there's a court order. There's nothing you can do. And so Dylan arrives on the 18th of November, 2012 in Durango. And he disappears on the 19th of November and he's never seen again. Is this a closed case? Was his dad, uh, his dad convicted? was, his dad was convicted. Yes. And he was given the maximum sentence that he could be given for the charges that he was brought in for. What were the charges? Um, child abuse resulting in death and tampering with evidence. I believe he got 48 years total. So it's not really a murder conviction that he's basically saying, you know, it was an, it was an accident when I was abusing my child. Is that kind of how that works? No, nope, he never admitted to anything. He never, uh, he did not attend a single search. He attended one vigil the night that Dylan went missing and Elaine rushed down from Monument with her husband and her son to go look for Dylan. Uh, he told Elaine that he had called the marshal's office in Bayfield, Colorado to report Dylan missing. She called immediately after that. And they told her that they had not heard anything about Dylan. So he never even called the marshal when he said he did. Uh, 
Elaine and, and the family and a bunch of volunteers are out in the woods looking for Dylan. It's really late at night. It's like 11 o'clock. Mark comes home, goes home, goes inside, turns off the lights, and goes to sleep. Wow. So this is a 15-parter on True Consequences. Yep. Oh, I have to listen now. <laughs> I'm going to have to listen. Holy cow. So the document trove that you got, what did that look like? Uh, <laughs> thousands of pages of documents. I don't know the exact number. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hundreds of hours of audio and video and just so I got so much from the court website, all the exhibits, I have all the exhibits from the trial. And then I also streamed the trial live on my YouTube channel and on my Facebook page. And so I had a lot of trial footage as well that I used in the series. Wow. Well, that, that is compelling. I will, I will definitely have a listen. I, <laughs> I, I tell people that I'm not like a traditional consumer of true crime stuff. Like I, I started YouTubing about true crime long before I started watching anything about or listening to anything about true crime. Yeah. Um, it was a, it was at the suggestion of a friend of mine, but I, um, I've, I've become, I've become a more traditional fan now. I'm, I'm spending a lot of time listening to podcasts. I'm watching a lot of stuff. Yeah. Well, I hope you enjoy the series. It's heartbreaking and it was a very difficult story to tell, but it was very much worth it. What did you accomplish it, by telling that story? What made it worth it? Um, I think that I was able to highlight once again, how common child abuse is, you know, how, how often things can happen. And, um, when I look at the way the story was told by others and I see, you know, a 17 minute conversation about Dylan Redwine or even a 45 minute conversation about Dylan Redwine, I don't feel like that really gets to the crux of the story. Um, you know, the story becomes kind of sensationalized when people start to talk about these fetish photos and that becomes the center of the story a lot of times. And it's not it, right. It's not, it's Dylan's life was stolen from him by his own father. That's, that's the crux of the story. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to tell the story in the way that honored him. And I, I hope I did. Well, I'm sure you did. I think you're probably uniquely qualified to do that. I mean, I, I, I keep coming back to it, but as, as your brother was the victim of, of homicide, that gives you a unique point of view, right? It gives you a unique place yeah. from which to see the story so that you can tell the story. Yeah, I, I try to be very empathetic. And I think I, I can be, like you said, because of my history. Um, it's not put on. It's authentic. It's real. This is, you know, these are real stories. These are my real reactions, my real feelings about it. So. I'm a bummer to talk to. <laughs> no, no, I've enjoyed this, man. I really have. I, I wish that I had spent 
I now wish that I had been able to take some time to listen to 10 or 12 or 15 episodes. I, I, uh, I listened, like I said, I listened to the first episode. I listened to last. I thoroughly enjoyed them both for different reasons. Thank you. They're very different stories, right? I really enjoyed the Tao's revolt. Um, and I think that's a unique story to tell within this quote unquote true crime community, right? That is yeah. a historical, that a story about a revolution against the United States in a time when the United States was in the wrong. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. A hundred percent. I, that was the third kind of case I talk about that I didn't actually get to because I forgot, which is I always like to throw in something that is just interesting to me or something that maybe isn't so dramatic, uh, not dramatic, but like, I don't know. There's some space removed, right? Historical space in between us and what happened then. Right. So it's a little bit easier to tell those stories um, because you're not as emotionally invested. Uh, yeah. And you can be time, a little more fair about it too. Right. Absolutely. You can be a little bit more objective about it. Um, but for me, it's more of a, a palate cleanser to tell some of these historical cases because it just kind of lifts the heaviness a little bit. Not really, but enough for me to have like a moment to breathe. <laughs> now, do you have that long-standing connection to uh, to New Mexico? Has your family been there for time and memorial and everything? Yeah, um, on my maternal grandmother's side. They were in California and New Mexico um, when it was Mexico, and then it became the U.S. on top of them. So um, they've been there for generations. My father's side of the family uh, were all very poor farmers in Texas when it was Mexico, and then it became the U.S., and we know the story. Thank you very much for joining me for today's conversation with True Consequences host, Eric Carter-Landin. I hope you enjoyed our chat. Remember, you can find True Consequences anywhere you listen to podcasts or visit Eric on his website, trueconsequences.com. You can find me on YouTube. Just search Gavin Fish, or you can visit me on my website, gavinfish.com. The website is chock full of investigation files on the cases I'm working on, some of which I mentioned in the show today. And if there's a podcast you want me to know about and feature on the show, or if you know of a case you think I should look at, you can reach out to me there. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time on your favorite true crime podcast. <laughs>